2: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which by the way is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, Most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast. And then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it. And you will too. So think of it for gifts and um, for sure go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I am so excited to be here today with Mitch Albom, who is the author of seven number one New York Times bestsellers, including Tuesdays with Maury, the bestselling memoir of all time. His book collectively have sold more than 40 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 47 languages. His latest memoir is Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. Mitch has written award-winning TV films, plays, a musical, and has written a syndicated newspaper column for 30 years. He was voted America's best sports columnist by the Associated Press Sports. He founded Say Say Detroit in 2006, which oversees nine full-time charities in the metro Detroit area. In 2010, he began operating the Have Faith Haiti Mission orphanage. He currently lives with his wife Janine, who he calls Miss Janine in this book, in Michigan. So, welcome to Mitch. Thanks for coming on, Moms. Now time to read books. Mitch, welcome.
3: Thank you, thank you. Glad to be here.
2: So, Finding Chica. Please tell listeners what this book is about and what inspired you to write it.
3: Well, uh, that's a big question. So, I operate an orphanage in Haiti. I have since the earthquake of 2010. I'm there every month. We have 52 children. Three days before the earthquake happened, a little girl was born whose name was Chica John. She, on the third day of her life, was inside a cinder block, one room house with her mother when the earth shook and the house collapsed around them. The roof fell off. Miraculously, she survived. That night, she slept out in the sugarcane fields in the dirt when she was three days old and slept there for the next six or seven weeks of her life. So you could say that she was born into the soil of her homeland and she was pretty tough. Our lives came together when she was two years old and her mother died in that same cinder block house, giving birth to a baby brother. There was no doctor present. That's not uncommon in Haiti. I'm sure whatever went wrong could have been fixed if she were in an American hospital and she'd be alive today, but... She wasn't in an American hospital, so she died. Little Chica was taken away that day and was brought to us at our orphanage, and that began our life together. And for the next couple of years, Chica was the youngest child that we had and the bossiest and the brashest and the bravest and the loudest. And she told all the other kids where they could go and what line to stand in and when they could eat and everything, and she was just a delight, a a very brave Brash, bold delight. And then when she was five years old, I got a phone call that there was something the matter with her, that her face was drooping. And we got her to the only neurologist that was available in Port-au-Prince, and we got her to the only MRI machine in the entire country— And when the report came back, it said there is a mass on this child's brain, and whatever it is, there's no one in Haiti who can help her. And we scrambled to get her a visa and paperwork, and next thing you know, she was coming to America at age five. We thought we would end up having her for a couple of months while our brilliant American surgeons would take out this mass, and then she'd be okay, and she'd go back and live amongst the kids in Haiti. And she never went home. And she ended up staying with us and becoming our daughter. And for two years, we traveled around the world with her, trying to find a cure. And the book Finding Chica is the story of that journey to find a cure, but instead finding something else, which is a family. And all the ways that we had our eyes opened as a couple who did not have children and were in their late 50s, Suddenly, had a little five-year-old precocious girl who didn't look like them, didn't talk like them, didn't come from them, but was every bit our little girl. And uh, I hope it's an inspiring, you know, uplifting kind of story, even in the light of uh, of what turned out to be a a, a, a sad event in the end.
2: It is an inspiring story, heartbreaking, but beautiful. Um, One of the things I found really interesting was your relationship with Miss Janine, your wife Mm -hmm. Mm Janine, and how you had gone through a period of time where you didn't actively want to have kids and you kept putting it off and putting it off until when you did want kids, it became impossible to do so. And I feel like there was a lot of beating yourself up in this book about wishing you could go back and doing it again. Do you think you would feel differently if you knew that it wasn't your timing? I feel like you kept thinking, if I had just known earlier, things would be so different.
3: Yeah, well, I think if all of us got to live our life through the prism of our later days, we'd all be a lot smarter. I want to be clear that it was me, not my wife, who delayed having children. And it was me, not my wife, who was afraid of the commitments, and she wanted kids. And we didn't get married until our very late 30s. And so, and even after we got married, I kind of delayed. I did that thing like, well, you know, we should be married first for a couple of years and then we'll have... And I don't think we realized how late in life that is to try to have kids. And then by the time we did try, it was too late and it didn't happen. And so we sort of settled into this role of aunt and uncle because we have 15 nieces and nephews. And so we became that aunt and uncle who took the kids for weekends and took the kids on some vacations and helped celebrate their birthdays. And on Christmas Eve, would go over and bring all the presents. But then on Christmas morning, there was nobody in the house, you know. And that was us for all those years. And I think my wife, you know, bravely and very admirably kind of dealt with it and said, all right, well, that's just not to be. But the fact is, I was more at fault for that than she was for many years until we took over the orphanage and until Chica came to live with us, that was this big empty spot in in our lives. And then it was filled in a most remarkable way. Not a usual way, but a remarkable way.
2: So Chica came to you in the beginning of this book. She's one of the characters, really, not just in the past, but as you're writing it. And a lot yeah. of the book is describing your act of writing this book, how it's difficult for you to write, it's very personal, and yet... Chica kept coming into the room literally while you were writing. Can you tell me more about that experience? Well,
3: I knew that, first of all, when you write a book like this, you don't want people to be scared of it. Like, oh, I can't read a book about a child who dies. It's too sad. It's too sad. Because then then they would be dismissing and missing a great story. But I understand the feeling. And so right from the very first page, you know that she died already. It's not one of those books that as you go along, she's getting sicker. It's not like that at all. But then... I also, you know she died because I say that she died, but yet she's back. And Chica would always come back, would always come downstairs with me in the morning because I get up early and she got up early. And I wanted to let my wife sleep because the day was hard enough. (laughs) And so Chica would come down with me and we'd sit in my office and I'd give her a magic marker or a pad or a doll or whatever. And I would try to write my books and she would sit at my feet and I'd say, now Chica, you know, you have to be quiet. And of course at two minutes, she'd say, you know, can I have another marker? Can I have a pad? What are you doing? What are you writing about? So, And her dialogue and her conversation was so much a part of who she was. She was so funny, and she butchered the English language in such a way that was so endearing that I thought, I've got to make this a conversation. So I wrote it that she's back, and she's saying to me, well, when are you going to start writing about me? And of course, I had been delaying doing that because I was kind of dealing with my grief and Not sure how to do it. And she kind of coaxes me through it. And so the the whole book is a conversation with her. And that's really, if you really want to know what our relationship was, it was a verbal relationship. Yes, we played physically, and I lifted her and carried her and all that. But first and foremost, it was the way she communicated. And I thought that would be the best way to tell it in the book.
2: And I love how on Instagram you've been showing all these videos of you with Chica yeah. and, you know, songs and lullabies and all the rest of it. It's, and it's pretty
3: close to how it is in the book. Yeah, right? it is. Yeah.
2: I was like, oh, I feel like I already saw this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: in the book, you also reference time that you spent with Maury from your famous book, Tuesdays yeah. with Maury, and how he had told you that his last months, quote, proved to be the most vibrant and likened them to the brilliant colors of a dying leaf. And now when you go through this with Chica's illness, I was wondering, did you see that same sort of vibrancy in the waning days of her life, or do you think that it only comes with the wisdom of old age?
3: Yeah, I think it's different with a a child. You know, there are several things that were different and several things that were the same with Tuesdays with Maury. Ironically, it was 20 years to the week that I found out that Maury had ALS, that I found out that Chica had DIPG, this terrible stage four Brain tumor. 20 years to the week.
2: You're going to have to make that a vacation week for me. Yes.
3: <laughs> right. At least every 20 it's years. For
2: every twerk, I find. Yeah. Years.
3: And with Maury, you know, I sat alongside a dying older man and learned a tremendous amount of lessons about my life and, as it turned out, other people's lives. With Chica, I didn't so much sit alongside as play alongside and carry alongside and travel alongside, but it was still time spent with what turned out to be a dying little girl And also had my eyes open and illuminated and learned so many things that I try to put in the book in seven sort of lessons, one for each year that she lived on Earth. The difference was with Maury, I never felt like I was supposed to save him. Sorry. And with Chica, Chica I did. No, it's okay. It's heartbreaking.
2: No, it's heartbreaking. It's just.
3: That, That was the difference. You know, when I didn't save her, then I felt like I had failed. And for a long time, I had to fight that. Whereas with Maury, I felt, well, it was inevitable, and he was 78, and he knew it was coming, and he accepted it. So Chica didn't know what was coming. That was her blessing, you know. And we didn't spend any of the two years that we had together Talking about, Chica, what what have you learned about life now that you know you're going to die? She didn't have any idea that she was going to die. And we kept it that way. And I'm glad that we did. I know there are some parents who deal with these situations who feel like transparency is the most important thing and explain to the kid why they're going to the hospital and explain what cancer is and explain what a tumor is. And I fully respect that position but I didn't do it and I wouldn't do it. I wanted Chica to remain the beautiful child that she was. And so we turned it into just childhood trips and childhood adventures and childhood whatever. And the few times in her life that she asked, why are we going to the doctor? I would say, well, he's going to help you you know, walk better or he's going to help you feel better. And then we'll go back to Haiti. It was always, when can I go back to Haiti? And that's, You know, until she kind of lost her ability to speak and awareness of, you know, which is one of the byproducts of this disease, she was a child, and she was hopeful, and she was optimistic, and that's the gift, I think, that we can give her. So there were many similarities between Maury, but there was that one big difference.
2: And, you know, I know this goes without saying, it's impossible for parents to save their kids in these Mm -hmm. situations. I mean, that's one of the things about giving birth or adopting or falling in love with a child is as soon as you create the life or adop- bring the life into your own, you know it, it has a natural end. It's just a matter of when are you there to see it or not. It's like the most...
3: Yeah, but I didn't want to be there to see it. I know. And I didn't, you know, I wanted to go first. I know. And that's still the hardest part of it is, like, anniversaries of days that, or her birthday where you say, okay, Chica would have been, you know... Ten years old, next year, January should be ten, you know, double digits. And it's always would have been, would have been, would have been going to school, would have been getting married, would have been going to college. Those are hard. But that's not the upthrust of the book. That's my kind of burden to bear. And you ask me, so I answer, because I'm happy to answer anything you ask me. But the book really celebrates, and in fact, towards the end, I, I say this very clearly, There are a lot of ways that families can come together, the traditional way, the adoptive way, the blended families, in your 50s and a kid who comes up from Haiti and joins you from an orphanage. But no matter how families come together and no matter how they ultimately come apart, this is true. You can't lose a child. And we did not lose a child. We were given a child. And it's on that optimistic note that I wrote the book, and I don't want anybody to think that I want sympathy or for anybody to feel sorry for us. We were given a child, and it was the best gift ever. And whether your child lives to outlive you or only lives a couple of years, you know, there are kids with DIPG who get it at four and are dead at four and a half. She got it at five and lived till seven. That's a miracle in the DIPG community. So it was a gift. It still is.
2: Oh. I'm so sorry.
3: Oh, no, don't be I, sorry. I
2: don't. You don't want, I mean, I don't feel sorry for you. I yeah. just feel your pain. Yeah. And,
3: um, well, anyway. I just miss her. That's all. Well. You know, when I talk about her, but I like talking about her.
0: <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
2: Do you feel that writing about her helped? Did that help you process it? I know you came down with all sorts of physiological symptoms as you were trying yeah. to write about it.
3: Yeah, that was weird. You know, I thought it would be very cathartic, and I found it to be kind of cathartic when I began it and all these conversations. And cause I could write what she would say, you know, and or how she would sing, you know, Do a deer, a email dear. And then <laughs> no, she's female. What? female, not email. No, it's my mouth. I can say what I want. You know, that's, that's how she would, her logic. And I put those in, or what she told me once she started singing "Super I could still see her because I have the video. She started And she it was, she had a, she had a pencil on the, the desk and then she banged her pencil. She said, now you sing it. I said, you want me to sing it? You sing it. I said, uh, how does it go? And she looked at me with the most exasperated face, like, you don't watch Mary Poppins before? Are you crazy? <laughs> you know, like, because <laughs> like, like, you couldn't imagine a world in which everybody didn't know all the words of Mary Poppins. So recreating those conversations and, and uh, you know, that was joyous in its own way. But you're right, I did get sick, quite sick. And I thought, quite frankly, that I was having a stroke, or uh, multiple, uh, I would get dizzy and my, my right side would go numb and couldn't feel my feet and my cheek and, at one point, they raced me to the hospital and took all these tests and ultimately was determined that it was grief combined with a lot of dehydration and too much coffee and you know, over caffeinization. And so they said, you need to sort of cut this out for a while. And they said, it's not going to go away right away. It's going to stay with you for, you know, probably another three to six months, even if you stop coffee and even if you hydrate and even if you sleep
2: how much coffee are we talking how many oh cups? I
3: had like 10 cups a day 10 cups yeah, okay yeah. fine
2: now so, I don't feel bad about
3: now it. I don't have any not, none I'm totally I'm totally off caffeine totally off all of it I don't even have decaf coffee or decaf tea just nothing and so she helped me in that way but it did stick around for a while till I finished the book and my wife was so much smarter than I was because she said this isn't you know, I had EEGs, EKGs, uh, uh, MRIs of my brain. I had a carotid artery test, you name everything. And she said, they're not going to find anything. You're going to be okay. And I said, well, then wh- what is this? She said, it's grief. And I said, no, no, no. I, I put all that beside behind me already. You know, it's been a year, year and a half. She said, Mitch, you loved her, you know, and, and that was about it. And she was right. Of course, she's right about most things. And, you know... In a certain way, I don't mind paying a physical price for having to write this story, because, you know, that's the price of loving a child, and I'm okay with it.
2: How does Miss Janine feel about the book? Do you feel like it helped her? Like, did she help you read along with it, or was it too painful? Um, I feel like it would be such a pain—I mean, I don't know.
3: Yeah, all my books, my wife makes me read to her. She doesn't sit and read them. She makes me read them out loud. She seems to enjoy that more, and in this particular case, it was tough. You know, it was a lot of tears, but— you know, there were a few things she asked me to take out, which I did. But it's very it was critical for me that she was on board with every word of this because this is as much her story as it is mine. And it's a story about the two of us and our marriage. And a whole chapter of one of the seven lessons that Chica kind of left behind all has to do with her and how you understand your partner, your spouse, so differently once a child comes in. And I was so stupid when I was younger younger man, and I worried about, oh, if we have a child, you know, it's going to take away from me, and she'll probably spend all her time with the kid, and I'm going to kind of, it's going to be two against one, you know, all those silly things you worry about. And once Chica came into our life, not only was I not that, but I so appreciated, I saw this whole other side of my wife that I never got a chance to see this nurturing maternal side, singing lullabies to, to Chica and walking her into the bathroom and shutting the door on me and saying, privacy, please. That's what Chica would say. <laughs> privacy, please. You know, because girls do that and men have to wait. And, and, you know, just Chica would take her hair and put it over her own head because Chica my wife has long, dark hair. And she'd say, Mr. Mitch, Miss Dean, and I have the same hair, you know. And I knew she was trying to like look like her and be like her. And it was so lovely, you know, and so wonderful to see my wife blossom like that, and to, I I just felt bad, like, why didn't we do this sooner, you know, why, why was I so stupid and selfish when we were younger, and, you know, I'm so glad that even though it was for a brief period of time, I got to see that, and she got to have that, and she has it now with all her 52 kids, you know, so it's a lot. But yeah, you know she was she so all of which is to say she's she's okay with it. She cries a lot. She doesn't come on these book tour things; it's too hard for her. She doesn't come listen to me talk or whatever. It's too hard for her. But but she's she's good. with She wants like I do. She wants the world to know who Chica was, and wants her to live on. And of course, all the profits from this book go to the orphanage. You know, I don't take anything. And so we know that you know if people buy this book or it finds an audience here around the world, uh, that's only going to help the kids you know and uh, that'll be Chica's sort of legacy to her brothers and sisters and they were all her brothers and sisters i mean we don't distinguish between blood relatives at the orphanage there once you're in these are your brothers and sisters for life and i know she'd like to help them
2: how did you get involved I know you have so many charities that you support, but you don't just support charities. You are down there in Haiti, hands-on, yeah. like actually doing such good work and helping so many people, all these kids and all of this. Is its is giving back just something that has always been important to you? or
3: No, I have to be honest with you, uh, it wasn't. I was very selfish, really, through my 20s and into my 30s. I think it was more when I sat with Maury, and he kind of admonished me a little bit to that degree, he said, what do you do for your community? I said, what do you mean? So charities, what do you do for your community? I said, I write checks. He said, anybody can write a check. You know, you've been given a voice and, uh, you know, a megaphone, and you need to use it to do more than just aggrandize yourself, you know? And so I started my first charity in 1995, the year that I visited Maury. And now I have nine charities that I operate I don't support them, I operate them.
2: Right, I shouldn't. And,
3: uh, no, I'm not correcting you. I'm just saying that there are many that I support. But those nine, I operate in, in Detroit under an umbrella called, say, Detroit. Haiti was an accident. I mean, I just went after the earthquake to help out a local pastor who said that his orphanage had been destroyed. And he couldn't get a phone call through. So we, I helped arrange a small little plane and decided to go. On this little plane to go see what was going on in Haiti, just a couple weeks after the earthquake, which was all over the news, and then I think, you know, like like seeing Maury on television and being somehow drawn to go see him, that was somehow meant to be in my life. And when I landed in Haiti and the things that I saw and people all covered with white dust and bleeding in the street and. Rubble and every every building collapsed and crushed and people weeping and crying and begging and drinking water out of dirty puddles because there was nothing no other way to get water and and, and then these, this orphanage which hadn't been destroyed but was overrun and children you know sleeping in the dirt and and begging for a cup of rice you know never leaves you and you realize this is an hour away from Miami you know on an airplane I can be here quickly. And I just began to get involved. I brought down a bunch of guys from Detroit, and we made nine separate trips with all the— they were roofers and plumbers and contractors. You know, Detroit, that's what we do. And and they brought all this stuff, and we built the first showers and toilets, first kitchen, first dining room, first school on this place, and we really built it up. And while we were doing that, the pastor admitted to me that he didn't have any money to operate it, so we were building all this stuff, but he wasn't going to be able to feed the kids or hire anybody— And in one of those moments that, uh, you know, you look back in your life and say, why did I do that? I said to him, well, I could probably operate it. I operate charities in Detroit. It's probably pretty similar, (laughs) (laughs) which it isn't. And he basically said, praise Jesus, hallelujah. And he handed it over, and I've been operating it ever since. And he's passed away since. And, um, you know, it goes on 10 years next year, and I'm there every month, and and I'll be there the rest of my life. This is never going to stop. Those 52 kids are my charge, and I'll, I'll raise them and make sure that they're all college-educated. My oldest two are already in college in the States. One is pre-med. He's 4.0. I I'm sound like a proud papa now, but I am proud. He oh. And um, he'll go back, and all of them know when they're finished, they'll go back to Haiti. First, they go to the orphanage, and they spend two years there. Doing whatever it is that they train to do for us. So if he becomes a doctor, he'll be our doctor. We have one who went through culinary school, and now he's our cook. Hmm. And, you know, so they have to, they know they have to give back. But then after that, they'll go into the country and make their own country better. Maybe one day put us out of business. That would be nice, you know. Until then, they know what they have to do.
2: So I have to ask you a little about your writing. You're one of the most successful writers of all time, the number one memoir of all time. What is your secret? What do you think it is about your writing that people respond to and connect with?
3: Well, I I don't know that it's a secret, and I don't know that the success of those books is necessarily tied to my writing, but I think the reason that people respond or have responded to my books is that I, I tried from Tuesdays with Maury on, and I think I did it with Tuesdays with Maury maybe subconsciously, I'm sure it was subconsciously because I'd never written a book like that before. But I kept saying to myself, is this about me or is this of some use to somebody else? And any time the answer was, no, it's more about you, I took it out. And any time I thought that there was something that was abuse for somebody else, I left it in. And what happened with Tuesdays with Maury was, I think, because that was a tiny book, I mean, nobody, it wasn't supposed to be anything. I just wrote it to pay his medical bills. and I was in New York here going from publisher to publisher to publisher, and every one of them said no. Boring. You're a sports writer. Nobody's interested in that. It's too depressing. I mean, I would have given up if it wasn't for the fact I was trying to pay his medical bills. I, I, was, I had so much negativity, it didn't seem like a good idea to anybody. One publisher took it gave us the money, which I gave to Maury three weeks before he died. That was all it was supposed to be, just a way to pay his bills. And I wrote the book, and it came out. They printed 20,000 copies, and we thought, well, that's that, and we'll be, I'll have most of them in the trunk of my car for the rest of my yeah. life. I'll be driving around, giving them out to people. And then it just found an audience, and people just handed it to one another and handed it to one another. And I think the reason they handed it to one another was what I just told you, was there's something in it for them. And they would come up to me and say, oh, let me show you a picture of my Maury. Or they would come up to me and say, oh, I'm just like you. You know, I was working way too hard and all that. And you were honest about how you kind of were a bit of a jerk and, you know, too self-absorbed. And I kind of feel that way, too. So they found themselves in that book, either through me or through Maury or both. And I learned something from that, that, you know, that's a good way to tell a story that people are going to hang on to for a while. If it makes them feel something about themselves, if you want to tell a story that just makes you feel something about yourself, you can publish it, and people may may get it initially, but nobody's necessarily going to say to someone else, "Oh, I got you this book as a present. I think it'll help you, or you really like it or there's a message in this." And so I tried in all my successive books to do that. So the five people you meet in heaven was based on a story that happened to my uncle about when he died in one of those near death experiences and rose above the bed and saw his dead relatives waiting for him at the edge of the bed and came back to life and later told me about it. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting, you know, that uh, maybe people are waiting for you when you go to heaven. What if they're not all your relatives? What if they're like somebody you just met for five minutes? But all of the lessons in that book were things that other people can relate to. Not me. It wasn't about me and my uncle, It was about, you know, when you feel you're a nobody, there's no such thing as a nobody. You know, everybody matters. So that became the point of that book. And all the successive books that I wrote, I always tried to think, well, what's in this for the reader? You know, or is it just something interesting to me? And maybe that's why they gravitate to them. To be honest, I'm probably the last person you should ask that question to because I don't actually buy my own books. You know, I get, I, I write them. So you, why did why did you like them if you read them? Why, what what was the appeal of them to you?
4: Oh,
2: because it's just so open and honest and relatable with a sense of humor, and it speaks to the very essence. I mean, I'm a mother. The idea of losing, you always wonder, what's it like? Yeah. You you take us through what it's like as a guide, mm-hmm. without like preaching in any way. You inspire and connect, and I think that's. Just beautiful.
3: Well, thank you. That's very high praise. That's I appreciate true. that. It's true. Thank you.
2: Anyway, but I had to ask you because, you know, how could I not ask?
3: Well, writer's, <laughs> writers podcast, so yeah, you want a book podcast, you should ask.
2: <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking My the time and I wish you all the best. And thank you. You know, I'm sure you're gonna be mobbed by people with people are showing well, you pictures of Maury. I'd be you're happy to
3: uh, I'd be happy to, because that would mean that her story is being read. And if it inspires other people to hold their children tight and realize the preciousness of them, then I will have done something worthwhile. And so Chica already did, so it's my turn. And I hope that our time together inspires people.
2: You've absolutely done something worthwhile in so many ways. Thank you. Thank you,
3: Mitch. My pleasure.
2: This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.